Don't you know, Coo? Driver! And welcome to the Interstate Wrestling Podcast, the wrestling fan podcast that is bringing you on a journey of adoration, enthusiasm, enjoyment, and simply nerdism into the world of wrestling. I'm your co-host, James. And I'm Josh Mordecai. Welcome to our Mania review. Quite a week, quite a weekend, uh, quite a few following weeks. Excited to kind of dig into some of the things that we saw and enjoyed and maybe less than. Sticking with the theme we're getting to about five episodes in or five and a half if you count the bonus we threw down sticking with the idea of biting off meaty chunks and sizable topics mania week mania weekend deservedly requires its review episode doesn't it one of the things that we discussed and agreed and we delayed the release of this episode by a week is there was just so much to consume it was overwhelming yeah and still so much that i had to dig into i still haven't watched nearly everything that i wanted to from that that week whether it's been time or like iwtv having some issues but yeah still so much to dig into and so much great looking stuff that's been produced since yeah very true the limitless show that just went up i've seen nothing but like incredible notes on so don't remember the name of it but it's the most recent limitless show if you're listening want to check that out too i gotta check that out i love limitless yeah some odd stuff gone on as well hasn't they i mean the uh I guess tax day has been replaced by axe day since we last recorded an, e- an episode. Yeah. <laughs> the second annual WWE call-in. Yeah. Worth just connecting on that for a second before we dive into our, uh, our review. A lot of cuts last year under the guise of budgets and such and similar expression today. I don't mean to cast a spurging commentary here by any means, but there was a recent sizable sale of the network to Peacock Streaming, which you might consider would have helped budgets. I mean, I'm not I'm not the business manager for the WWE. Yeah. But some surprising releases. Samoa Joe like being let go. Yeah, and even because I saw a lot of commentary about like he's hurt, he's a great commentator, they're trying to broaden their commentation. That's a leftover of watching so many Chikara shows, calling it commentation. <laughs> but even to have him backstage in kind of a, a trainer role or kind of an Adam Pierce backstage agent role, to just kind of let him go seems really bizarre. And I think the same with Mickey James. Yeah. Hall of Famer, right? I think so, yeah. It seemed to be some odd releases. Yeah. And, and talent that seemed to be, I mean, Billy Kay and Peyton Royce were both on the Mania card, weren't they? They yeah. both appeared at Mania and then were gone as quick as they yeah. they went out on the stage, which was which was interesting. And Billy Kay had, having kind of a one of the more fun spots in that weekend, even from Mania, that kind of handing out her resume to everybody who will listen and then doing kind of the, the Ms. Dow gimmick that's fun and goofy. And she did it really well and then just gone. It was bizarre. The Bo Dallas one I kind of get because he hasn't been used in ages. But if you go back to his original NXT run, they completely dropped the ball on that Bo Leave gimmick. That was, it was so funny. He was so delusional. And it was just a really great... He had to be dragged out of the studio when he lost because he wanted to still 
keep up this face for his fans and refuse to accept that he lost. And it was just, it was so good. It was incredibly entertaining. And then he just kind of did nothing. Did you happen to pick upon the rumor that he was actually the fiend? Mm. Just because of the svelte, different presentation of the fiend at the the Mania match? I'm I'm sure it was Bray Wyatt, but (laughs) interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And now we've hit the entire Rotunda family. We got Bray, we got Bo, you mentioned the IRS, so Dad's in there too. Right. So I've hit for the cycle on the on that particular family. <laughs> <laughs> I was just listening, actually, as a, as a digression to the uh, recent Jim Ross podcast, which is a whole expose on Micro Tunda. Really? And I only know him as IRS, again, much as we've highlighted when we've chatted in the context of, of this show, WCW in its real-time existence, completely evades me. I was more WWF-centric at the time. Mm-hmm. So I only know Mike Rotunda as IRS, and I, I didn't realize the extent to the career that he'd had uh, and the prominence he had in WCW, part of the Varsity Club with the Steiners and such, and then yeah. the Wall Street character, which is clearly the source material for Irwin, our shyster, isn't it? It's him after IRS bringing that into WCW, because he was a VK Wall Street. So like Vincent Kennedy McMahon. So it's this kind of like tweak of the IRS gimmick into also making fun of uh, Vincent McMahon. Right, right, right. Yeah, they mentioned that VK tag taking the shot, as it would clearly be. It was definitely an interesting post-Mania season as well. But uh, we're dancing around the topic itself, aren't we, Josh? So uh, why don't we hit the highway there and uh, get into uh, talking about WrestleMania week, what we enjoyed, and maybe less so. Hell yeah, let's do it. WrestleMania week, WrestleMania weekend, there was about 11,100 hours of content to chew <laughs> off. I, I, I don't yeah. know about you, Josh. Uh, yeah. We uh, we maybe should start with the big show, the broad stuff, and, and whittle our way down, because as we get into the, the indies and stuff, I didn't even chip the edge of the block with the available content. I wanted to sort of get your take on the vibe and the aesthetic as it came down. There were three real moments that struck me that sort of raised the hair on the back of my neck, to say frankly. One was when when Mania actually went on air, and there was a crowd and there was real noise. It was like, shit, this is awesome. Again, we are not a COVID-19 podcast. I think I've said that every episode so far. But it was just, it was awesome to see expressions. It was awesome to see the noise, the stadium. Yeah. It was awesome to see the rain delays because it was really happening. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other two two examples were obviously Vince and the entire company coming out at the beginning of the show. Just looking at the expressions of the talent and the company, looking out across the crowd, people were very emotional and just soaking up being stood back in, essentially, uh, figuratively and literally, the arena that wrestling is supposed to be presented in, which is in front of the fans. The other example was the Bianca, Belair, and Sasha match. And before they even got locked up with each other, Kayfabe was out the window and they were just soaking in the atmosphere. They were getting emotional and teared up. How did the aesthetic of the whole thing land from you, even down to the Indies, looking at the Cuban club and that amount of people? Yeah, same. It was kind of weird, right? Because you still are looking out for how safe does this actually seem in the back of your head, right? Which is it kind of. Uh, Took me out of it a couple times when they cut to the crowd. I'd be like, oh, that's not ideal. It looked very busy at the Cuban club, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And with them during the rain delay having to be packed into the corridors. So they're not even in their distanced seats and stuff. It was just 
that type of thing like popping up in the back of your head yeah but i totally agree with like changing the energy of the show like you said seeing them on stage and just kind of looking out in the crowd sasha and i've been able to look at bianca that kind of like i can't even look at you or i'll start crying type of situation that they had um and we'll talk more about that because that was just an incredible overall nothing but glowing things to say about that match but yeah i agree it was definitely noticeable how the show the energy of the show felt different how much it must have felt different in the ring and then how that kind of came across watching at home so yeah i totally agree having the crowd there was took it to the next level kind of brought it back to what you think of for wrestlemania in true mania fashion we've talked about the stage displays uh, over the course of these conversations haven't we mm-hmm. no expense spared that stage set up that pirate ship disappointingly underused as i think kevin owens will uh, will attest to yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it, it looked the business as well certainly thoughtful and careful camera angles and shots and where the hard cam obviously sits naturally but the stadium looked busy. It looked like a show I was pulling up in relation to our, on our Wrestle Funnier episode. Of course, you brought the stats out. So <laughs> I thought we should take a look at the stats here for a second. I guess WWE advertised that about 25,000 fans each night attended the event. So 50, 51,000 people. Those folks are the uh, WWE reflections of the numbers. There was some actual analysis of about I think it was about eighteen to 20,000 people per night. There was about 21,000, 22,000 tickets allegedly sold. And then, of course, not everybody showed up. But still, you, you know, even sort of having a little bit of jest and fun with the numbers and the stats. Sure. 18,000 people a night, 25,000 people a night, regardless of what it was. That was a sizable chunk of wrestling fans back in the audience. Oh, yeah. And that's like the size of full shows that they're running in the new gen era. Like those in your houses, those, I mean, even those manias around that time are running 17, 18, 19,000 by WWE numbers. So pretty huge for a WrestleMania 13 crowd to be there as limited capacity. Yeah. Good turnout. Mm-hmm. Another statistic, they broke the attendance record for cardboard cutout people as well, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> Did you see the, uh, during the rain delay, people were taking the cardboard off of seats and wearing them as hats? There was some great Instagram stuff as well, where people were like, you know, my, my date is less than happy with this match because it would be, you know, some cardboard cutout of a business person, just like, you know, flat affect, no expression, of course, because they're a 2D cutout. <laughs> there, there was some great moments with the with the cardboard cutout. Sure. <laughs> it looked like a mania show. I mean, they, they really went to the efforts for, even with a reduced crowd, to make it feel like mania. Yeah. Kudos to everything that went on in Tampa that weekend. I guess even at Stand and Deliver. There were invited guests. There was actual, you know, it wasn't just kind of wrestlers playing audience members. There were invited guests that went to the taping. And I think they've been doing that a little bit more now that's the Capitol Wrestling Center. I think they've kind of started to bring in a few more people. Slowly graduating back to getting our hands on some live action, aren't we? Fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah. Let's take a look at the big show then. We sort of highlighted the card uh, over the previous episode. I'm kind of eager to dig into. The stuff with you, eager to take a look and see what landed for you and what was good across the the two nights of Mania itself, I guess, to begin with. Yeah. And I'll say night one, I think way outpaced night two. I don't know if it's like a a Sunday night curse now. They moved NXT off that Saturday night, but the Saturday night show still landed more for me. I have way more things that I enjoyed from night one for some reason. I don't know if you felt the same that was uneven in any way. I think your point is well said. The, The pacing, I think I looked forward to more 
on on night one. It totally landed better. Maybe that's just like the psychology of the weekend. I'm way more sort of in a wound down mood and I sat back and just took it all in on a Saturday night. Sunday night's a school night, isn't it? Yeah. And you've watched anywhere between 15 and 90 hours of wrestling in the days leading up to it, right? You just kind of, you've reached <laughs> right. your, your natural limit, you know? Yeah, there was a saturation point by the Sunday night, wasn't there? 100%. <laughs> Match of the night, of night one then maybe, I suspect we're going to heartily agree out of the gates on this one and probably the main event right yeah an incredible match a super special moment like that's going to be in video packages for the rest of history it's funny matt was over because we're both full of bill gates 5g juice right now <laughs> both fully vaccinated you've got the fauci ouchy done have you yeah <laughs> both so he was over and uh when they showed bianca we just looked at each other and we're like well this is gonna be her moment like she already knows what this is going to be, uh, has an idea of what it could be. And then seeing a fan recording of Sasha after the match, like, can't help but smile. Where she was sort of curled up on the floor at the barrier and just grinning yeah. from air and the yeah. pride on her face. Yeah. And the videos of Montez Ford coming out and scooping her up on the shoulder, like Randy and Liz, and then carrying her backstage. Like, it was just a really beautiful example of what wrestling can be and, like, how powerful that moment can be for. Not just the performers, but I'm sure that was the reaction of people at home too. And electric anyway, and then amplified because it was what it was. It was the first show back in 15 months, 14 months, right? I mean, already supercharged electricity. Yeah. And then dialed up past 11, you know? And Bianca doing some incredible, like I, the spot I keep thinking about from that is that plancha that she rolls through on the outside and then gorilla presses her. And walk Sasha up the stairs yeah. overhead and dumps her in the ring. That's just some wild. Uh, that's I mean, she, she has that CrossFit background, so I know that she's done like walking overhead stuff before. But that was just such an incredible moment for her. That was jaw dropping, wasn't it? I, I remember. Oh yeah, my jaw hitting the deck. I was like, "Fucking hell, she's strong." Yeah, yeah. The hair whip. Talk about <sighs> cringe moments. The the clap on that. And the yeah. instant abrasion that Sasha <laughs> yeah. got to her torso. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like a shotgun. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, it really delivered, didn't it? I, I was, again, sort of reading other reflections and looking at other stuff post-match. There was comparisons starting to come about from the Mania 35 main event, which was the three-way of Ronda, Becky, and Charlotte. And oh, yeah. Did one deliver better than the other? And, you know, to some credit to the, the talent performance of, of each person in those situations, one at a different time, one existing for different reasons. But mm -hmm. I think your point, again, is well said. The Bianca Belair-Sasha Banks match will be one for the annuals. It was so good. The story was there, even with a, the sort of mm -hmm. slight drop in kayfabe at the start of the match where they were just consuming the emotion, helped tell the story. Because then not only were they fighting each other, but the actual real passion was being soaked up as well. So they wanted to deliver as well. And there's, there, there are just so many aspects that you'll go back and watch that. And it'll, it really will be a mania moment for all time, won't it? Yeah. And we'll have a package in 10 years of whoever the next big uh, women's star is saying how much that match meant to her. You know, that's that's going to keep popping up. Yeah. And Bianca Belair is, is special. Uh, oh, yeah. Not to, to jump around night one and night two. And certainly not to jump prematurely to the NXT side of things either. But the complete changing of the guard across all of the women's titles really felt like an evolution moment to me. Uh, I'm certainly not being dismissive or, or saying that, you know, 
Sasha Banks has done or, you know, Oscar's done and it's past, you know, there's no intention on my part to say that they're past their proverbial sell-by date, but just mm-hmm. recognizing the talent that's coming up and through and giving them the push, moving, hopefully, the opportunity along to tell some some compelling stories. Which is something we've talked about in the past as being kind of the major flaw of a lot of WWE booking is not being willing to kind of build these new stars because there's questions of loyalty or whatever. So kind of seeing that change, like you're saying, of, maybe we do have the next generation of superstars, as Vince likes to say. It's kind of refreshing. Yeah, big time. While I'm talking about the changing of the guard, and we're talking about night one, well, I called that fucking wrong, didn't I? On the Drew match. <laughs> Wild. I could not believe that you were wrong on that. Yeah. What went through my mind as, as I was watching that, and ultimately the result came about, was that conversation that you and I have had about that Mania 6 moment, keep going back to that WrestleMania 6 showdown of Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior, and you think, there is no way. There is no way. Shit, they've gone and done it. Yeah. I was convinced it made the most sensible booking in my mind that Drew got his moment in the in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And as it happened and it finished, yeah, it almost made as much sense that it didn't. And, and I don't mean to sort of imply that, oh, look, I'm trying to save face. Oh, look, I pivoted so quickly in my conviction. <laughs> but it was like, he came out first. So he got his adulation. He got his exposure, got his mm-hmm. moment with the crowd. He stood there, soaked it all in. But the story that's happening with Bobby Lashley, and I'm not a great deal of a, of a Bobby Lashley fan. I, at least to this point, I haven't really loved the character. Right. So I was like, oh, you, you know, he's just a, he's a transitional title holder he's he's an interim holder to get drew back to this position mm-hmm. everything that had gone on leading up to mania with the hurt business coming apart bobby looked even stronger and more powerful and even more diabolical mm-hmm. actually makes sense how did that land for you again i called it completely wrong yeah i mean i think it was smart to do that because it kind of i think a lot of people were where we were with like this is drew's moment so then to throw that surprise right away kind of oh wait like, what else is going to happen tonight? And yeah, I think that they can use it to kind of convincingly make Lashley this, like, just dominant figure. Kind of a Brock Lesnar-esque, he's going to mow through everybody and take more challenges than Lesnar did, be a fighting champion who just puts everybody down. That could be kind of a cool way to take that. And, like we said with Lesnar and Taker, whoever they decide to take that off of him, it's going to make them look like a million dollars. Yeah, big time. I hope... They stick with whatever intention they've got, whatever sort of intention they've dangled by Lashley successfully defending the title at Mania, and it's not kind of too quickly or arbitrarily thrown away at what is now called WrestleMania Backlash. Yeah, I don't get that. I'm not... (laughs) I I didn't know it was real for a while, and then I saw that's officially the name. I mean, that was always kind of implied in the name anyway, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's that much of a of a stretch to say it's the backlash from WrestleMania. It's the next show. Yeah, absolutely. What else on on night one stood out for you? We, I know we were really looking forward to Cesaro's uh, match and hoping he got his spotlight. Yeah. How did that one for you? Yeah, I thought he looked great. I was so excited to see. I mean, the way they called that UFO that he did, letting him do some of the kind of super strong stuff that uh, he can do. I read something where. Some, he had done that move in, I want to say, ROH. And someone had said to him, why don't you do that all the time? You should do that on every show. And he said, well, I'm really kind of saving it for WrestleMania. So that was like way back. That was kind of a goal to do that. And he was able to. And yeah, I thought he looked great. I'm excited that he's getting kind of what he's deserved for ages. And I hope they keep kind of that momentum behind him. 
it shook me, especially with Bobby Lashley Drew being on first, seeing Cesaro get his moment. Hopefully that there continues to be a push around that. Pretty good matchup there for Cesaro and Bobby Lashley to go at it for the WWE title. Yeah, yeah, speaking of some freakish strongman stuff they could do. Yeah. What didn't hit so well on night one? To be honest, I think the, the weakest match was that cage match, but even that was fine. I, I was so close in my prediction on that. He didn't throw Shane through the cage. He tore the cage apart and pulled Shane back in, <laughs> which I appreciate like the creativity of doing that. That was novel, wasn't it? Sort of ripping the cage open and dragging him back through the hole. I, I don't think I've seen that before. And No, not that I can think of. Like I said, it's usually the panel breaks when somebody goes through it or the side falls off or whatever, but... Right. Certainly tame on the Shane McMahon end. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't diving 92,000 feet from the clouds into somebody's <laughs> chin, was he? Right, yeah. Maybe a final thought on night one. Bad Bunny can wrestle. Yes. I have two names in, in all caps in my notes. Bad Bunny and Bianca. Because those were my two standouts for the night. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible, the stuff he was doing. I have to say, I, I don't know anything really about Bad Bunny. I, I, I don't really know anything about him from a musical career point of view. I've grown to understand he is a wrestling fan. Has he got some formal training? Where, where did he pull all of that out of? He was training for the past couple weeks with, I want to say Drew Gulak was doing a lot of it, which is kind of bumping around with different people and doing some of the training. So I think that they have enough people who are really, really incredible and have some training as trainers that I'm sure they hooked him up with who are his best. I mean, Drew Gulak was a trainer at the Wrestle Factory. Right. So they send a lot of people to him. So I'm guessing it's something like that. Sort of speculating or, you know, sort of understanding if it's only a couple weeks of training. Again, he looked fucking amazing. Yeah. The suplexes he was dropping that he was doing, you know, they were doing in yeah. tandem, him and Damian Priest, the splashes off the ropes. He yeah. could run the ropes. Yeah. And massive credit to the Miz and Morrison for making him look good. Yeah. Right. That's the, that's the, the Bret Hart story with, uh, was it Tom McGee? where he made him look so good, Vince thought he was going to be the next Hulk Hogan, and that turned out that he was terrible. <laughs> so Miz and Morrison doing the work to make him look that good, as well as the work he put in to look that good. Great point, yeah, because uh, there are stories, aren't there, of talents that um, have less of an inclination to sell in these type matches. You know, oh, you're a celebrity, you're just getting in here. Mm -hmm. They did a phenomenal job. And speaking of selling, he did sell like somebody who wouldn't be trained. He wasn't just like selling like death. He wasn't no selling. It was realistic selling for somebody coming into a wrestling match, not as a wrestler. Yeah. Which is like such a little thing for somebody to do is to like know how to do that appropriately and convincingly. And I think he nailed it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, incredible. That was a lot of fun because that could have been probably one of the more dubious things on the card. There are some pretty storied celebrity matches throughout the history of WrestleMania, aren't they? And I did read something fun because, uh, is it Pat McAfee from the NXT matches uh, last year? Yeah. Who, love, hate, whatever, you know, wherever you lie on your feelings about Pat McAfee. He put on a decent display in that match against the Undisputed Era last year. But uh, there was a lot of commentary that he made Pat McAfee look like an amateur as well. <laughs> Just, you know, funny, funny commentary on it. But um, yeah. for what could have been pretty dubious was was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, skip to night two and then uh, take a rundown of that. The standout stuff, again, we, we said a moment ago, didn't quite pace as well as the first night. The first night was a lot of fun. I'm going to stick with my statement again of, fuck, I called this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what, what stood out for you on night two? I think that women's tag was a lot of fun. Billy Kay was so good in it. I always love seeing Ruby Riot get a moment. Back when she was Heidi Loveless on the Indies, it was great. 
So I always like when she's able to get in there. The Riot Squad looked so good in that match. Was that night one? Sorry, not to correct you. Because then it was Natalia and Tamina versus Naya and Shayna. Oh, you're right. You're right. That goes back to how stacked night one was compared to night two. My favorite, one of my favorite things of night two actually happened on night one. And I'm <laughs> well said. So Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn always, I mean, that's an evergreen take, right? Like who had one of the best matches of the night? Kevin and Sammy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then giving the, the standard celebrity at Mania has to get a stunner at the end. I appreciate it. How about you? What was your standout of night two? Certainly Sammy and Kevin, and that was the match I was most looking forward to. Obviously, we agree consistently. They just deliver. I enjoyed that. I liked the story that was being told, the Logan Paul aspect. He was being a bit, you know, changing colors, being a bit, you know, betrayal to Sammy. So yeah. Kevin stunned him as a result, which was still sort of told that story of I'm, I'm still trying to knock sense into my friend for me. I'm fighting Sammy tonight. I'm trying to encourage him to get out of this paranoid mindset but don't turn your back on my friend. It's like, you know, he was still defending Sammy. So I thought that was great. Mm -hmm. I did think the main event delivered. Again, I called called the finish completely wrong, didn't I? And kudos, what a creative finish. There's been lots of discourse on how how it ultimately finished and should Edge be the champion because he, in fact, pinned Daniel Bryan and (laughs) Charles Robinson, the referee, has been on social media saying, no, there were two sets of shoulders on the mat and Roman pinned them both. And there's just a real nice angle there. Again, I. in the context of trying to consume everything <laughs> still as a result of Mania, I haven't quite still picked up on where that storyline's going yet. Yeah. I think, again, to date stamp this evergreen recording, Yeah, I guess there were some spots on SmackDown last night where Daniel Bryan is potentially going to get a rematch against Roman. I'm a bit out of the loop now at this point. I've got to play some catch-up to where the story plays out from that. But it was a good match. and. Three ways are always tough, aren't they? It's like somebody gets left out of the equation or doesn't get the opportunity. I find three ways tough to watch sometimes, but they all got their spots in the action and there was just the crossfire and Daniel Bryan looked great, Edge looked great, Roman looked great. Roman, again, calling the booking wrong. I was convinced they were going to give Edge another run. Roman looks extremely strong now. You just can't fathom who's going to take him down a peg now, can you? Yeah, and kind of found the loophole in that finish right so he comes across as being like dominant and he's like this ring general can like make snap decisions or whatever but i'm also curious because there's a bunch of stuff coming out now about daniel bryan talking about maybe when his contract's up he's gonna go wrestle somewhere else and his contract's up pretty soon or just go and like be a dad for a while so it's not really clear with that coming up where that might go he's a phenomenal talent isn't he daniel bryan so wherever he lands the rest of night two was fine. It just it lived in a nice place of mediocrity, and I don't mean to sound so disparaging saying it that way. Seamus Riddle was decent. Yeah. I, I didn't greatly care about the outcome. Apollo Big E, the Nigerian drum fight. It was fun, and Big E's a fun character. Yeah. The title change. Yeah. Fine. Apollo Cruz is now an intercontinental champion. My favorite thing of that match is uh, Big E coming out in that feeding Tampa Bay singlet with a jacket, like calling attention to that charity i think we already talked with him auctioning off gear for food link in rochester after after brody yeah so just kind of keeping that momentum of like well here's another good thing you could be doing in your community i'm gonna advertise it on the biggest platform i have you know not a wrestling thing but a human thing that i really appreciate coming out of that i loved his gear was it from the rumble i loved the new days gear that had all of the nods to to brody 
Yeah. They do take that opportunity, don't they? The spotlight causes that are important to them. It's, it's kind of ace. Oh, yeah. Looping back to the Oscar Ree Ripley, we, we already sort of touched on that right across the, the two Mania shows in NXT, which we'll slide into in a moment, there was a full change in the guard on the women's side of things. Rhea Ripley took some serious flack for this match, didn't she? Which uh, I guess I lie on the side of the opinion that she hadn't wrestled for quite a bit. I guess she hadn't been in the ring since January, a little rusty. I thought it was a decent enough match, though. Like I didn't feel like, oh, it was full of blunders and didn't sell well. And I thought the change in title made sense again in context of seeing what had happened with the other two women's championships. Yeah, it doesn't stick out to me as being a match that I would like heavily criticize. Like you keep saying, it's it was like a fine night of wrestling. A lot of it, like. I don't, I can't think back to like big spots in a lot of these matches, right? Because they just kind of happened, you know, um, and we're fine. But I think, I think Rhea Ripley, and I'll talk about when we get back to the indies, or we talk about the indies, Rhea Ripley is a good example of somebody who's young and who they could really kind of, Bianca too, they could really kind of pin a future on. They can both drop those titles at any time and have a long career while they'll win, win them back over and over and over. She already has that story with Charlotte from, was that last year's Mania? That's right, that's when Charlotte won the NXT Women's Championship from Rhea, wasn't it? Right, yeah. So they have that, they can always go back, go back to, she has all these different kind of checkpoints, and I think she's great. I'm a, I'm a Rhea Ripley fan. She adds another dimension to the women's division, doesn't she? Yeah. Exciting to see her carry the, the strap again, bearing repetition in context with the full change of the guard that happened. There was the nice spot on the subsequent NXT, the first NXT on the Tuesday night, of course, which, uh, as an aside for a moment, what a sensible thing to do. Look at the numbers and the ratings that have published since that. Mm-hmm. NXT is getting higher numbers. Dynamite's getting higher numbers. Just give wrestling fans the opportunity to not have to jump back and forth between the channels. Uh, I'm a fan of that. Right. There was the nice spot on that Tuesday night NXT where everybody came back to the Capitol Wrestling Center. Yeah. Ripley stood in the ring, Belair stood in the ring, and Raquel Gonzalez, and they all stood there. There was the pitchers harking back to their original days in NXT together. Mm-hmm. It almost had little flashes to that sort of four horsewomen notion. Oh, yeah. You know, the next generation of that, granted, you know, being three of them, but harks to that sort of, here's this power group again, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I, so that's the thing that I appreciate both about that moment and, again, going back to the Bianca moment, was there was so much that just felt like celebratory about the whole thing, right? Like, it's not just storytelling of good and bad, but it's like we have this thing where entering like kind of a, a new era of it, maybe. Like, let's just celebrate the good things that are happening at company right now, which, you know, I'm for. Yeah, agreed. I think it's, um, it's a nice tone to it, isn't it? Is the point, yeah. What were your thoughts on The Fiend and Alexa Bliss? I wanted there to be more of a match. It was clearly a showcase piece. So the presentation was great, and clearly the character of The Fiend deserves to be on a stage. And it hacks what Bray has always delivered, doesn't it, with the lights going out and the fireflies and all the rest of it. Yeah. The ominous box. It definitely set up a real, like, what's going to go down here? What What is this? Oh, yeah. The match itself was a bit like, it didn't feel like there was a match. If I'm going to be critiquing it, there didn't feel like a match. And then the Alexa Bliss stuff at the end just got weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you caught any of the like development of that? Little bit with, because uh, seemingly now Alexa and The Fiend are going to fall out with each other, right? There's going to be a, a lover's quarrel, a, a tiff, if you will. Yeah. And is it Lily, the little plush? I think so. Yeah, because people are 
guessing that that's like supposed to be like Lilith, like the biblical figure. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So I've I've caught bits of it. I watched the Raw after Mania, which just felt like any Raw. It kind of broke the pattern of big call-ups and surprises. The Viking Raiders were the only ones to come back. But yeah, I guess the new development is Lily has always been in Alexa's life. Like, even when she was a child, she had Lily. And it's always been this kind of thing around her that she's now, since she had that interaction with the Fiend, now she's tying into this demonic force that's been in her life forever type of thing. So we'll see where that goes. It could it could be kind of cool and dark, or it could be like not cool and dark. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely sat on a knife edge right now, isn't it? I mean, I dig the idea. I, I thought bringing Alexa into Bray slash the Fiend storyline has had some real compelling moments. It's been some of the more interesting parts, certainly of of the the snippets of Monday Night Raw for me and playing into the pay per views. I kind of like. I mean, clearly, there's more than a visible, tangible nod to the Joker and to Harlequin, isn't there? There's there's a clear nod to that direction, right? Yeah, and I and I'm down for that. I'm I'm, I'm there for that. But that whole ink stuff, Allah, you know, if we're going with the DC reference here, like the villain from the Suicide Squad terrible movie, not the one that's coming out, <laughs> just bleeding right. black ink from her forehead and sort of. Yeah. It left me baffled and confused by something that had set itself up to be sort of really suspenseful and like, oh, what's going to happen? Right. A point that I did sort of want to sort of acknowledge was they glossed over Melty Fiend a little bit for me as well. Yeah. The video package of him walking down the hallways of hell or whatever it was supposed to be in a flash of magic light and there's the Fiend back again, which, yeah, of course, I get the rationale why the Melty Fiend suit was probably a bit more difficult to maneuver in and actually engage in a match. But it felt like a quick reversion after he just surfaced in this scarred, figuratively and literally burned state, you know. I totally agree. And I think the same is true of that black ink thing you're mentioning. Like that was done and now they haven't really revisited that. I don't know if they're just kind of leaving it up to interpretation of whatever you think that was, that was. And I guess it's connected to kind of the Papa Shango-esque Randy Orton puking up the black liquid stuff. Like there's connections there, but I don't think they've been explicit really in what all that's about right they definitely needed to put a bit more of a bow on it for me yeah same for me and who knows maybe they still will mm, yeah yeah it, it hasn't been there yet for the fiends first wrestlemania out in on the big stage acknowledging the the cinematic match from last year he was on the wrestlemania car but literally being out there on the big stage i would have wanted to see something finesse a little better it was a bit like when he showed up at SummerSlam and and that first Finn Balor match which what was that 2019 Toronto SummerSlam I think so yeah when he came out that was you know his first appearance after all of those vignettes and stuff and the match was great you know but yeah so let's talk about the two nights of of NXT and then we'll uh try and chip away at some of the indie stuff that we saw as well because uh to say in a word, it was magnificent and over. Well, saying two words, it was magnificent and overwhelming. How did Stand and Deliver land for you over the two nights? Yeah, I thought both nights were great. There were a couple standout matches in each night. Here comes the least surprising thing of the episode: that Pete Dunn Kushida match was incredible. It was everything I wanted it to be. Pete Dunn doing that like smug shithead like shrug thing he does always gets me and him doing it at the end of the match was great so yeah that's definitely like one of the highlights of uh those two shows and to digress there for a second as well and reflect to that post mania weekend nxt show again pete Dunne obviously beat kushida but then kushida very quickly got his moment in the light that following tuesday because of course he took the cruiserweight title right 
Yeah. So had a great match with Pete Dunne, didn't win. Right. But still got the push and looked great against Pete Dunne. So he was protected enough to go win a title, you know, whatever it was, a week later. And sets up a potential feud for that belt. Yeah. Which, yes, please. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Sign me up. Yeah. The ladder match was fun, too. Pretty, uh, nothing, I think, especially groundbreaking for a ladder match. Although I will say when Jordan Devlin comes off and goes through the ladder in the corner, my girlfriend was watching it with me and she was like, oh no, that man's actually dead. That's, <laughs> like, that's, not, that's not good. That, that looked terrible. That speaks to that spot of how convincing and well done it was. There was genuine concern in the living room when that happened. Similar deal, I experienced that in spots through the Walter Tommaso Champa match because for a call that I think we did predict yeah. or come close to predicting correctly, I did think there was going to need to be a body bag a couple times there because Ooh, yeah. Walter's famous for his chops, isn't he? And they go through one side of the chest and out the other. I mean, he just cuts through people, but Tommaso Ciampa held his own as well. And they were bloodied. They were bruised. They were, yeah. you know, Tommaso Ciampa with his neck history did not take some awful bumps in that match that I was like, oh God, he's not going to walk again. Yeah. And I love Walter and I'm a fan of Tommaso Ciampa. I thought that delivered and then some. Yeah, and just absolutely brutal. Just two guys beating the hell out of each other. Wasn't like a lot of flashy, right? Wasn't too technical. Just two guys who don't like each other beating the shit out of each other. You know, really enjoyed that match too. Carrying Cross, of course, as predicted as well, took the NXT championship. That match could have delivered a lot more for me. Again, I don't want to be sort of too picky about it. But knowing the caliber and talent that Finn is as well, I'm certainly not saying it was a, a bad match and I'm not pulling it apart at the seams, but um, I remember watching through it and, and maybe it was just the convergence of all the content we're starting to watch at this point. Granted, Stand and Deliver was early in the process. There's nothing that feels stand out about it in terms of the match, notably stand out, other than it got the belt to Karrion Cross, and now you've got Karrion and Scarlett delivering great promos and, you know, similar to uh, to perhaps Bobby Lashley and Roman, a big imposing force that you struggle to think who's going to take them down. Yeah, as you were saying that, I had that same thought, that they've kind of set up this pattern now of who they're... Like you said, with the women's champions, kind of this is the, the new guard of women's wrestling in WWE. You also have on the men's side these kind of unstoppable, whether it's because they're brutal and smart and want to protect their spot like Roman, or... They're just strong and dominant and can destroy you with strength like Lashley, or they're dominant and ruthless and will suplex you through the ground like uh, Cross, but they've kind of set up these different versions of unstoppable champions. That's an excellent point. I hadn't pieced that together in my mind, but you're right. There are bosses, aren't there? There's these big imposing power forces that are all carrying on the men's guard side of things. That's well said. I find the takeovers to be super consistent i've i've always said that yeah they always seem to be well well put together anything else stood out there for you from the the two nights so uh, what about the uh the kyle o'reilly adam cole and sanctioned match yeah those are always fun in nxt one of the things i love that they do with those because there have been a few of those and usually they so your standard takeover is like two hours long right give or take and those unsanctioned matches they like to put on so that they really start after that two hour point so they kind of become like, okay, really unsanctioned. The show's over. Here's the last match. And I think the first one that they did, they even put up the NXT logo, like the show was over, and then pulled it and had the match. And little touches like, I think that was the match where the ref wasn't wearing the zebra stripes, right? He was just in a black t-shirt and black pants. So lots of little touches to drive that. 
um, another two guys who I think are going to have great matches whenever they're together. Love the what Bam Bam Taz spot where they go through the ramp. Like that's always a fun spot. Yeah, there are a lot of great little things in there. Told the story well. Sets up Kyle O'Reilly. He had that stare down with Cross, so it makes him look like a million bucks. So yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed the aesthetic for that, like you say, with the the ref dropping the zebra stripes, having the extra officials in the ring at the start of the match, sort of cross section the ring and keep them on, you know, the north south divide, so to speak, or the east west divide. Uh, so they couldn't get to each other until until the match started. There was some nice aesthetic to that, for sure. One of the weaker spots for me, again, I, certainly not to lean into more critiquing points, the Johnny Gargano and Bronson Reed match. He was the surprise victor for that for me from the night before. I think you had called it thinking it would be... Dexter Loomis. Dexter Loomis. Thank you, yeah. Again, surprising twist of turns there. Yeah. I felt ambivalent about that match. Yeah, I think by doing that surprise and having be Bronson Reed, might not have had the impact or let the match have that impact because it just kind of felt like a random matchup. You know what I mean? A normal week of NXT? Hell yeah. Like, that match would be great. But I think you're right in that kind of the way it was built maybe didn't have the impact that they were hoping for. Again, for a, a statement on aesthetic, the way they've dressed up and got the Capital Wrestling Center, just it fits the NXT black and gold, doesn't it? Sort of the black drapery. It looked great. Yeah, I like that they've got kind of the chicken fence wire around with the Perspex glass. Yeah, it looks a little underground. It looks a little Fight Club. It looks a little raw. Excuse the pun. <laughs> and I the mic thing that drops down from the ceiling before big matches, kind of calling back to those early MSG shows. Yeah, where you see the uh, mic come in is a nice touch. The let's get ready to rumble uh, signature drop in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. NXT was was fun overall, wasn't it? Which leads us ultimately then to the smorgasbord and Aladdin's cave of shit that went down on the indies. Yeah. You know, the two prominent side of things was the GCW collective stuff. And then obviously the IWTV showcase stuff. The GCW shows predominantly at the Cuban Club in Tampa, I believe. And then IWTV showcase stuff predominantly at a brewery in Tampa, which I believe is 81 Bay Brewery. So as we give a fellow nod to our beer review to journal brethrens and steal some wrestling beer crossover here. <laughs> there's the world's collide lads. Uh, there's wrestling shows in breweries for you. <laughs> Where do we even chip off what went down on the indies? Yeah. And like we said before, still haven't caught a lot of it. I know for me, like the GCW is severely lacking on my end. There was a lot that I want to see on there kind of cost prohibitive this year being $150 for the one package time prohibitive as well because of all of the other stuff you know yeah the 12 shows that were yeah. going down at three hours a show in my once again terrible maths ability is about 36 to 40 hours of viewing if you just did the gcw collective stuff alone yeah and that's been so far with what i've watched on iwtv that's been kind of where they made it a little bit easier is their shows look like they're clocking in right about two hours so you can kind of digest a little bit more but yeah that's i i didn't catch all the GCW that I wanted to, unfortunately. So much. Yeah. I think one of the shows that we both purposefully sat down and watched, didn't we, was the Spring Break show, the now the uh, RSP Spring Break show. Yeah. Chat through that for a second, because that in of itself to highlight and recognize was a phenomenal show, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You had talked about, you had presented and we had seen on our Bloodbath and Beyond episode talking about death matches, meat skewers to the head. Mm -hmm. I don't know that prior to <laughs> to the spring break show that I'd physically 
seen a match where meat skewers were being driven into somebody's scalp. <laughs> yeah. And they were sufficiently inserted that they stood up on their own. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That Atticus Kogar match with Masada was... Grim. Was just fucking yeah. grim. <laughs> yeah. And the the really, like, I do really like Atticus Kogar has the 440 neon green skewers. Like that, I, that's a nice touch for him. Got sort of jammed in, in fist grabbed fashion, released, and then splayed open like a blooming onion. I mean, it just the imagery was like, oh God. Yeah. That show was a lot of fun. I, I have to say, yeah. something that would stand out for me watching that show, and there were many standout moments watching that show. Leo Rush, Blackheart Leo Rush, looked great. Yeah. Talking about Bobby Lashley again, he only lives really in a mindset for me in the WWE as a partner to or even chaperone to Bobby Lashley. I'd seen some of his NXT matches and bits and pieces, but didn't really have a you know, sort of a strong mindset, didn't have a sort of a living, breathing essence of who he is as a wrestler, and then saw that spring break show and saw that he's developed into an amazing character with this black heart stuff, this walking zombie, undead, living dead thing, whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. The paintwork, the tattoo work, the ink that comes with it looks amazing. And that match yeah. was solid on that. Again, for a lower card match, was really, really good. Yeah, I agree. The whole presentation was... Even down to the the opening where the camera was black and white as he's coming out, giving you kind of a like George Romero type of shot to open that, right? Like, a, a, like yeah, really cool presentation on that. And going back to that thing we were talking about, it's easy to do kind of a creepy character in a way that comes off kind of cringy and kind of like, this is a creepy character done by somebody who hasn't really spent time with horror or with genre film. Shout out to Anomaly. Um, <laughs> but Leo Rush feels like he kind of did his homework on that and has figured out a way to present it in a way that doesn't feel like he's reaching for a character that he doesn't understand in a way. I think your nod to the George Romero aesthetic with the black and white intro is is brilliant. It's uh, It looked great coming out to the ring. Given that was the one that we sat down sort of in real time together, though apart, and took in, what else, uh, what else landed? Yeah. Let's save the main event to last because I think that, Bears dissecting a little bit, but on the rest of the card, what else uh, really paid off for you? So the two standouts for me, that Billy Starks versus Starboy match that opened the show, I think it opened the show, was super fun. The ending was a little concerning. It looked like it was a legit, like Billy Starks was kind of shaken up a little bit, but fun match. The wildest thing with that, and I had to check today. So Billy Starks is only 16. Is that right? Yeah. She's been she's been wrestling for two years. Starboy is eighteen. He's been training since he was eleven. So these two in this match that was like good are the same age combined as Bray Wyatt is right now. <laughs> so when we look at the people on the indies, you know, there's a lot of talk about what's going on with the indies. And no, it doesn't have the big names anymore. But you got Billy Starks, you got Starboy, you got. Big Calix, you got Boomer Hatfield, you got a lot of these like really young performers who are just starting to hit their stride and show up places. That makes me want to go back and see that match again instantly because I did not know they were that young at all. That is a incredible piece of information. Yeah. And when she was on shows, apparently like she would show up, she'd have her match, she'd get in the car and she would leave. Like so she did she wasn't there, I think, for a lot of like the more violent stuff. And I think she was gone before the Grey Sweatpants Battle Royal at Alley Cat Show. So, I mean, they have 20, 25 years of careers ahead of them. Unreal. 
and they both wrestled several times across a few days as well, given that youthfulness career-wise and youthfulness age-wise, right? Yeah, she's been rapidly showing up on shows. She has, she has a bright future. What was your other standout? Uh, I think you're going to be with me on this. Iron Beast, what, Shane Mercer and KTB team? Yeah. Just some of the stuff they pulled out was unreal. It's the type of stuff you make in a creative finisher in like a WWE game that should not be physically possible. <laughs> right. Just the freakish strength of both of them was incredible to watch. So I'm excited to see them. They're starting to show up on more shows as a team too. So I'm ex- excited to see them take off. Yeah, very solid match. Again, the power and the prowess in that really stood out, didn't it? It was crazy. Yeah. I think I got to give a spotlight to the Joey Janela Chris Dickinson match as well because that Death Valley driver off of the rope, through the door. I, I think I text you and Matt in real time watching that and was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> yeah. That was insane. And you've mentioned the name and I should skip back to the beginning of the match. You mentioned Bam Bam Bigelow once already. Yeah. The nod to Asbury Park. Uh, I loved Joey coming out in the Bam Bam Flames. That was a nice little touch and a, and a wink and a nod. Same. That was superb. I enjoyed the hell out of that match. It had the story, didn't it? Because of the, the friendship devolved. It had incredible spots. Joey Janela and, and Chris Dickinson, frankly, as I've grown to learn, they're both nutters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a very respectful and admired <laughs> way, but they're crazy people. Yeah. And that DVD off the rope through the door was just, I was astonished by what happened. Yeah, that was a great match. And he's, Janela's been getting a lot of uh, commentary on that DVD because of how kind of how high he stacks guys when he drops them. But yeah, that was a, that was a really fun match for sure. I think we should just highlight for a second as well the um, Effie match with Greg Iron and Virgil coming out and having a nice little spot that he'd got the wrestling his gay shirt buried under there where he was really there to support Effie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Virgil lives in a little bit of infamy, doesn't he? For his post WWF career. Yeah. That was a nice little spot for Virgil there where he really got the crowd, got a pop from the crowd. Yeah. And then for Greg Iron to work like eight straight minutes of that match, just ass fully hanging out. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. That that hard side crowd got a much different show than the rest <laughs> of <laughs> the rest of us did. The commentary was great at that point as well. Once he got sort of his trunks pulled down and <laughs> his ass was hanging out. Yeah. It was uh, it was great. But then of course, let's just touch on the main event from this because it was in saying yeah the gcw championship of course champion ricky shane page defending against nick gage i knew it was going to be trouble when in the setup to the match they were wheeling a 15 foot scaffold and i thought oh gosh this is going to be bad (laughs) yeah matt and i had the same conversation i think i think the actual conversation was is that a fucking scaffold (laughs) yeah right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes yes it is yeah <laughs> and that in fact wasn't even the surface of it was it between the glass plates yeah and going repeatedly through the glass plates i, I chuckled at one point because the referee couldn't get rid of the debris quick enough to try and preserve greater injuries yeah he was f- like furiously yeah. trying to sweep glass out of the way and yeah as quick as he like you know got one set of yeah one pile of debris out the way rsp or gauge was through another object and it was just splashing everywhere again to go back to your statement if you're uh, if you're on the hard cam side of that match you were certainly in a precarious position on the hard cam side of the, this main event match because it was vicious 
yeah, the amount of light tubes that were broken in that match was unreal. That final spot of him coming off the scaffold through the, the tube cube was unreal. The one ref, Chris, I think it's Chris Levin or Levine, had to pull out of refing gigs for a couple weeks because he ended up needing stitches from being a ref in that match. Jesus. That was like seven stitches in his forearm just from being in the ring, much less being RSPR, Nick Gage. Absolutely wild. Definitely. In the context of talking about death matches and extreme matches, again, a couple episodes back, if you listen to this and you're a wrestling fan and you're sort of wanting to dig more at extreme matches, go look at this one for a modern day, most recent display. Yeah. We're talking about the scaffold being wheeled out. You just highlighted all the light tubes. It took them so long to set up the ring because they put how many light tubes on two sides of the ring and sort of elastic tied it to the ropes. And it was just like, oh, there's going to be so much damage done here. Yeah, and very much a callback to like that first wave of deathmatch stuff in CZW. That could have been in Danny Hyde's mom's backyard for the way that show was set up. It was very much that style. And then a surprise ending, a surprise running, of course. John Moxley comes tearing down to the ring to give Nick Gage some shit. Yeah. Notable for two reasons. One, Moxley showing up and causing some trouble, which was exciting. That was excellent. Yeah. But also... Somewhere across town, or rather across state, to be specific, there was that AEW house show going on. Yeah. He shows up on the indie. He's not on the house show over in Jacksonville. Worth a digression for a note again. Yeah. AEW had sort of said they wouldn't run house shows and had no intentions of running up against stuff going on on Mania Weekend. And, and they did, which is which is fine. I, I, I guess there was commentary. I guess there's thoughts for both sides of that coin. Right. It's a big wrestling weekend, and you've got a big migration of fans down to that spot. Why not put all the products on the table? Because you can be can be fans of all of the stuff and pick and choose what you want to go see. So if you're an AEW fan and you're down there for Mania, there was a house show. That's great. You got to go see that. And I guess it was uh, sure. it delivered. But coming back from my side journey there, Mock showed up on, on the show. And uh, that was a hell of a spot to wrap up that show with. Yeah. And just the image of him face to face with Gage. And then he pulls back and his face is now covered in Nick Gage's blood. Like, if that's what happens the first moment of a build, imagine what like the savagery of that match is going to be, right? And just like AEW has a working relationship with GCW? Or is this just they have freedom in their contract to go work someplace? Well, that proverbial forbidden door being blown open is definitely a nod to something else that was going on on the Indies this weekend as well, which we'll get into in a moment as well, wasn't it? It does go back to the statement of this cross-population, this cross-collaboration is really exciting. Yeah. Is really exciting. Because then the matches, as we've as we've identified before, the matches, the possibilities are endless at this point, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, as we're talking about it, Iron Beast versus Bear Country. Like, I can't even imagine the things that would happen in that match. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Like you said, sort of the Spring Break show was really what we paid, what we carved out the ability to see the most of, wasn't it? I took a little glimpse around at some highlights and hopefully at some point I aim to try and go back to see a bit more. I did see some highlights from the Alley Cat show. I did see some highlights from the Effie show. I guess the Lady Frost Edith Surreal match really delivered on Ali's show, which was awesome. Yeah. But um, again, you know, 12 shows, three, three and a half, four hours, upwards of 35 to 50 hours of content. Yeah. Just a near impossibility to, to chip off. The flip side of that then was obviously the IWTV showcase that we mentioned. And I don't know about you, Josh, but I ended up ultimately sort of cherry picking around this. I kept sort of seeing the shows go up. Yeah. 
And I wanted to find matches that I was excited to see for names that were familiar. But then I also tried to pay attention to names that either through our discussions or through, you know, stuff online, names that I didn't know so well and just try to cherry pick bits and pieces. How did you go about tackling some of the showcase stuff? The two shows I knew I was like for sure going to watch and would recommend anyone watch were those two family reunion shows, which I'll talk about because there were some like real standout moments on those. But then similar idea. Like I knew I wanted to watch that Kevin Kudam Gardini match. Uh, and then immediately after that was Daniel Garcia, Brett Eisen. So I sat through that too. Like you said, just kind of bouncing around and seeing who was on what show. I'll go back and watch the whole things at some point, but just to kind of get my eyes on some or some of the things I heard, saw clips of on Twitter or whatever too. Chat me up on those uh, family reunion shows then, because I, I sat through, I think, night one and then cherry picked through two. So uh, hit some of the high spots on those shows for you. So if you haven't watched them, what was really cool about them was they were kind of showcase matches from different promotions. So you got a little taste of a bunch of stuff. So one of the things that I noticed kind of all week, and I totally get why, was some of the timing felt off in a lot of the matches. I think it was just they haven't been in front of a crowd or haven't rested in a while, but there was a little bit of kind of rustiness, but not enough to ruin any matches. But opening up with that Atomico's match with Erica Lee and Boar and Boomer, and then on the other side was what? Travis Huckabee, Matt Bukowski, and a very good professional wrestler, formerly Dasher Hatfield. So just kind of getting that that boomer Dasher moment again, which I don't know if that lends differently because I was watching that whole angle of them over time, kind of the disappointment of Dasher and his son. But that was a really fun match. The other one on there that I was really surprised by was the old wrestling match, Will Wrestle, who is Cody Lane versus Judge Hugo Lexington Black, which is RSP working the day after that Nick Gage match. And Will Wrestle is, is a hobo. So like Will Wrestle for food type of thing. And the entire match is just him trying to pick RSP's pockets and RSP trying to get the money back and shove it back in his pockets. <laughs> yeah, just like a really fun, goofy match. And then of course, for night one, that match between Lee Moriarty and Edith Surreal. Just a showcase. The technicality, the flips, the floor moves that happen in that. I mean, the agility, the flexibility of Edith Surreal and Lee Moriarty was so good. It was such a back and forth and such a technical back and forth was super good, was such a good match. And they have such good timing and chemistry together. Like I rewatched the, the finish this morning and the way they time it just perfectly for them both like kick and for Anywhere to go up into that bridge for the pin, like the timing was perfect through so much of that match. What was the run in at the end as well? Because I didn't know who that was. Somebody showed up and kicked Edith Surreal in the face, and I wasn't sure who it was. Was he wearing a mask? Yes, definitely there was a mask. And then after sort of the altercation, took the mask off as well. So IWTV ran a tournament called the Masked Wrestler. So Yuta, Will Yuta, Utes, won that tournament and now gets a shot at the uh, championship. So that run-in of, when's he going to call that in, showing his face that he is coming for that after winning that Mass Wrestler tournament. Got it. Okay. We can go back and take a peek at that, because I, I definitely was like, I have no idea what's going on here. And there clearly was something something of a story nature being told, and it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, which that does kind of does lead to confusion for people watching, but I wonder if that's also going to, like you're saying, drive people to go and watch other iwtv shows right to fill in those blanks yeah that seems like it would be the intention right for, it would be for me it's like oh there's there's clearly a story to be told here right 
what else on on family reunion what else uh look good yeah so i think the one standout match for me on that was the last match of night two is an atomico's match so let's see if i can remember who's on it one team was big dan champion eric cannon lucky 13 and jigsaw who jigsaw still looks incredible like he has not missed a step i think he said that was his first match in a year and he was so so good and then the other team was trey lamar very good professional wrestler daniel maccabee and will yuda that was the other team and it was a very goofy i keep coming back to chikara and i know that's last year with the speaking out thing and everything like i know that chikara is not a great company but it's one that was like really important to me when i first started getting into indie wrestling and it felt like that type of match they come out and a very good professional wrestler's theme song is that foo Fighters song but they just keep repeating the best over and over so it's just that playing and the crowd going the best the best the best and he has his arms up and then the other guys also have their arms up and it's like a full minute and a half that they're doing it. And then Dasher, I keep calling him Dasher. Very good professional wrestler goes, okay, start to put him down. Now back up. <laughs> and like just keeps doing it. And the sound guy cuts his music. And he's like, turn it back on. And the guy does. And he uh, puts his arms up. He goes, okay, now I can turn it off. And the sound guy does. He goes, turn it back on. And does it one more time. <laughs> so it's just like silly. Uh, at one point, Dan Champion stops a match so his team can go to the bar and all chug a beer. Like it was just goofy fun match to end that show highly recommend if you have 15 minutes and which one have some fun i gotta go back and, and see more of that night too because i uh, i spent a lot of time with night one as i said but less so with two talking about sort of the cherry picking and jumping around there was that show that we should highlight talk about the proverbial forbidden door being swept open you had previewed it on our last episode looking forward to mania weekend but of course thin juice showed up on the have fun be sad action wrestling show fighting violence is forever kevin ku and dominic greeny yeah that was a super fun match there were some real nice fan spots or a fan spot in that because finn juice came out first which i also respected from an aesthetic that they let violence is forever be the stars of that like they came out second they got you know the, they got the second response from the crowd but finn juice spotted some guy in the crowd that had his finn juice poster and took the t- you know they grabbed a free eight by ten from the side signed it at the side of the ring gave him that made a big fuss out of it. And talking about the moments that just right across the week, right across the weekend that really sort of highlighted the wrestling fandom, the being back in the live action, celebrating wrestling, the story moments, the reasons wrestling exists. Yeah. That fan moment sort of encapsulated that as well. It was just, there was a real sort of joy and a pleasure for the two dynamics of wrestling that need to exist. The wrestlers, the talent, the performance, and then the fan reaction and the fan crowd coming back together and it was just a, a, a nice spot i mean you know thin juice are massive names and of course they were parading around the impact tag team champions which fast forward to the impact show this weekend i fully expect to go back to the good brothers i'm probably calling that wrong now as uh, at this point as well but that was super fun and that was good to see this beer hall this brewery pretty small space i mean 50 people in the audience again the charm the allure of the Indies, getting to see this caliber of talent, back to your point about Billy Stark, 16 years old, yeah. new talent, up-and-coming talent, existing big names, you're seeing them up close and personal in real environments, which is super to see. But that match was stand out for me. Yeah, and I love kind of the second level of that, signing the 8x10 thing of like, we're the fucking big shots here. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, we'll take care of you in a minute, 
let us sign this autograph for our fan first type of thing. Like, I love that. That's so... There's a cockiness to that, isn't there? Yeah. And I'm just, as you can probably pick up from listening to a couple episodes, I'm just such a huge fan of like the really subtle things that wrestlers do that tell a story. There was a Daniel Garcia-Kevin Koo match on one of those family reunions too. And similar thing, They every time Kevin Koo was down, it was a lot of like grappling, seemed like they're calling out of the ring. Every time Kevin Koo was down, he was trying to kick Daniel Garcia to give himself space and wear down his legs. Daniel Garcia at one point pins Kevin Koo. It's a two count and Garcia sits up and you see him kind of like moving and you realize he's kind of running through the motions he just did to pull off the move and try to figure out where he went wrong. So just like, yeah, I love that type of stuff. Just the little nods that people work in. Agreed. There's lots to be said in the nuances, isn't there? Yeah. Similarly on that show, the match that was directly before it, I didn't particularly know either name that well. Nolan Edward has floated across my radar. But in terms of seeing a little bit more of extreme deathmatch again on this journey that we've been on so far, yeah, the Angelus Lane, Nolan Edward, unsanctioned deathmatch was super good. There was a great spot in that match where she's got him draped over the bar and is essentially waterboarding him, just pouring cups and cups of water over his face. Whoa. You know, he gets into the ring at the very start of the match. And before the bells even fucking rang, he's emptying out 10,000 thumbtacks across the ring. It was a back and forth of brutality. Um, It was a super good match. It was, again, if you're inclined to go back and cherry pick some of these moments, if you're listening to this, it's 10, maybe 15 minutes of barbed wire (laughs) viciousness. Yeah. And he's a name that's popped up a lot as like a new face to look out for in Deathmatch. Him and Akira are the two like young kids everybody's looking out for in that scene. Speaking of deathmatch names or rather adjunct in this case there was a match on the tony deppen's beer house show which was ava everett who is well on my radar from limitless fame she's also got a connection to formerly known as anthony green and now called august gray so of course they're connected but then on the other side of that match was casey Catal, who i believe she's married to is it brandon kirk is that his name deathmatch star deathmatch guy and they put on a super good match again i I knew one side of the equation and i was like oh, i'm gonna check out that because i don't know who i didn't really know who casey patel was and you know obviously paying attention to something called beer house and knowing who tony deppin is i jumped around that a little bit yeah i'll have to go back and check out that show that was one that's on my radar that i just haven't gotten to yet the other match that we should give a, a shout out to just with the beer wrestling overlap is the casanova valentine Obviously, we've highlighted him before for beer and wrestling reasons, but he was on the No Peace Underground Murder Mania match in a death match with Madman Pondo and the special referee of Marcus Crane, right? Which uh, was just thuggish. It was just, it was awesome. It was just violent and brutal. Yeah. And Pondo is one of those other like CZW deathmatch legends, like your Nick Gage, your Spider Nate Webb, your Masada, all the guys who are around kind of in that heyday. And Marcus Crane does wild stuff he's like one of those uh like super body mod guys so he'll do stuff where he gets like hung by hooks and piercing needles through the cheek oh gosh yeah which a guy named thumbtack jack did that german wrestler would do syringes and then they would shoot liquid out of the syringe through his cheek oh yeah he retired super young he took a bad bump on a cinder block messed up his back he was like 24 so there's a lot of, like, in that match, there's a lot of callback to kind of the history of Deathmatch. Right. Again, if you're inclined to go back and see something of that nature, that's another good showcase in that arena of things, isn't it? Yeah. 
as we said at the beginning and throughout the tone of the conversation, there was way more than we could chip off and we're still spending time going back because there was great stuff to see. There's just some phenomenal stuff to see and there's many matches across both the GCW side of things and the IWTV side of things. Well worth going back and visiting, isn't there? Yeah, and keeping an eye on what else is coming. I mean, those companies kind of got some steam that week and are keeping that momentum going. Feels a bit like running down the street when that kite is flying away and still like grabbing at the ribbons, but never quite getting to the kite, doesn't it? I don't <laughs> know if that metaphor lands, but it's like I'm not quite still getting a, getting to, to catch it all up yet, you know? Yeah. Overall, considering current climates, considering current times and the challenges, given how things looked this time last year, Mania Week seemed to land and deliver pretty specially, didn't it? Right across the board. Yeah. And we hit so many moments that we enjoyed. And that's, like you said, just kind of scratching the surface. Two other guys could sit down and have this same length of conversation and talk about completely different shows. Yeah. That said, we covered a lot. We're getting into a bit of a penchant here on uh, the Interstate Wrestling Podcast, aren't we, of mountain-sized topics? Yeah. Which is great. It just highlights the, uh, the amount of stuff. We should give a super shout-out to the Lunchador Podcast Network. We are part of an amazing family of podcasts and podcasters of course, we had our episode where we joined our brothers, figuratively and literally, on the Beer Review Journal for a uh, rather raucous and rowdy, uh, <laughs> slightly berative, all in jest, <laughs> back and forth, which was a lot of fun. And of course, Matt joined us on our Wrestle Funnier episode. But certainly, folks, if you're looking for some tremendous podcast content, there is the Anomaly Presents Film Festival podcast. There is the Beer Review Journal there is Caleb versus Self, there's Mimosas with my besties. Certainly urge folks to take a look and a listen to some of those episodes. Go to Lunchador Podcasts on Twitter, and you can find links to all of that stuff there. Want to give folks a shout out to where they can find us on the socials, Josh? Join the conversation. Yeah, I think Twitter and Instagram are now ISWrestlePod. Find us on those both. I'm at ISWP Mordecai on Twitter. And then of course, Shout out to Alien Trilogy for their incredible song, Michinoku Driver, opening and closing music. It gets me excited every time I hear it. So thank you to them for putting that incredible piece of music out. Absolutely. Thanks for checking us out, folks. I hope you uh, enjoyed this conversation and uh, join in the, uh, the back and forth on socials. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. See you later. Michinoku Driver! Driver!